series of Galatians, third sermon. Uh, the name of the series is Freedom Fighters. And the reason I've gone with that is Paul is fighting for the freedom that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have a verse right there <clears throat> that I've been using to exemplify why the freedom is under threat. It's actually in the passage that I'm going to read to you today. So let me read to you Galatians 2, 1 to 10. And this is what we're going to study today. If you have your Bible, you can turn there and follow along with me. Galatians 2, verse 1 says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that proclaimed that the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. <clears throat> to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. <clears throat> Father, as we uh, study this passage today, my prayer is that uh, you would teach us from it, that we would be challenged by it, <clears throat> that we would see how you're a, you are the chief shepherd over um, the whole church on the globe. You call certain pastors to have a vision to reach certain kinds of people. And ministries may be autonomous one from the other, but you are the shepherd over them all, and there is still a unity in Christ despite diversity. And then, Lord, <clears throat> we could see Paul's passion to drive it at that which would enslave uh, Christians to gospels that, that are false. So help us to learn from Paul's letter. He wrote it long ago, yet it has application to us today. And we commit this time up to you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I emphasize spies. That stood out to me. It's the purpose of the letter. We get it right here in our passage we're studying today. There are spies who have come in to the church, he says. Now, just as I was pre preparing, I just went over to Google and I said, you know, the top spies that ever existed. You know, <laughs> I like to do that sometimes. It was, this list came up of all these famous spies. And the thing that actually stood out to me was um, the list had to, to clarify who their allegiance was to. Because sometimes you had a, 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 a spy from this nation go over here, but then later it turned out they were a double spy. They were really spying for this one over here. And then what if the double spy suddenly switched again, you know? And so the list, see, 
only when after all is said and done do they look back and they can tell by the result of what they had done, what they were really motivated by, and who their allegiance was to. Now, one of the spies, my favorite on the list, because I, I always say I really like military history and I like to read about it. There was one of the number one spies in World War II was this guy named Garbo. And I, I put a picture up. He was Spanish and he went from Spain when, when Europe was falling and, and uh, France was on the edge of collapse. He migrated up to, uh, to uh, Great Britain and he approached the Germans and said, hey, I want to spy for you. <clears throat> and the Germans sent him there, and the Germans said, build us a network of spies. So he went there, and as the story goes, he, he recruited and came up with this list. You can even see the list, all the lines, how they're all connected. 27 spies in a network there in Britain, and they were feeding information back to Germany. The only thing was, the entire network was fake. He was actually spying for the British, and he was sending false information to the Germans. And it's really clever what they did. You know, he would just like, he would, they would just come up with, you know, totally fabricated. There's this sergeant, uh, kind of lower rank, you know, but, but he's sentimental towards your cause. And that became the character. And then they would feed them information. The sergeant says this. And they came up with all these characters. And then what they did was they tried to gain trust, right? So one of the ways they did this was the first landings in North Africa. The military gave this spy, Garbo, all the uh, information that was, it was accurate. Uh, the, the, there's this many ships. I saw them leaving the port and there's all this information. It looks like about the, the strength of forces about this much, the dates everything accurate, wrote a letter to the Germans, mailed it to them so they could have the information. But what they did was they post-dated it. They put the wrong date on it. So it looked like he sent it to them before the invasion, but he actually sent it to them too late for the information to be of any value and blamed it on the mail system. Sorry if you're a mailman. And the Germans bought it. They wrote back to him and said, man, the information you had was phenomenal as we are so upset that our mail system was that terrible. But it bought trust. And see, they built on that. And he could then influence. And he's most famous for throwing the Germans off to where the D-Day invasion was going to be. It was going to be in Normandy, but he wrote to them and fabricated an entire uh, regiment, 150,000 soldiers. I could see what's going on. Oh, Patton is here. He's the, the guy over this. It's a name they knew. It's going to be in Pas de Calais. I think that's how you say it. That's where the invasion is going to be. They had so much trust in him that when they landed in Normandy, he wrote to them, it's, it's a fake. Don't, don't buy it. They're trying to draw your best troops over there, and then the real invasion is going to be over here. And so the Germans held two of their best armor divisions back for days until they finally realized they had been duped, and it gave the Allies time. Now, see what a spy does? The, a spy builds trust. First it infiltrates, then it builds trust, and it has control over information, right? I was thinking about this. Garbo's use of information control, deception, the timing. They sent the letter late once on purpose. The lies, all in the pursuit 
of trust. And his motivation, Garbo's motivation is ultimately about control and power because he wants them to lose power to the allies. And he played a role in that. And that is similar to what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about these spies that came in. And you know what? They're doing very similar things. They're doing similar things. They want to gain trust. If they can gain trust, then they have influence. And they can use some of the same uh, measures. Uh, Deception, lies, the control of information. Paul, Paul doesn't give you the full gospel. There needs to be more that is given. See that? And spies are in-betweeners, right? Garbo is in between the Germans and the allies and the leaders, right? The spies that come in to the church are in-betweeners as well. They have been sent by someone else who wants information to gain influence and control. And the thing they want to influence, that's what's at stake. The gospel in its pure form. They want to add to it. That is the motivation of Paul. Now, as we go through this, we're going to see the response. And the very first point I'm going to give you is rejecting ministry failure. Now, listen to these first two verses. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, there's two motivations I see in those verses for why Paul left and went to Jerusalem to confront the leaders there. Let's get on the same page. The first motivation you see is external. It's a revelation. Why did he go? Because of a revelation. Now, This is not new to Paul. Last week we looked at his backstory, right? The origin story of Paul where he's traveling on the Damascus road and Jesus Christ appears to them. Why are you persecuting me? The gospel that Paul has comes from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. So I could tell you this, the internal motivation, fear, what is it that he's afraid of? Is he going to say, I need to get with you to make sure that the gospel that I have is not right? I don't want to be running in vain. That's not it. Because he got the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. He has no doubts about his gospel. The fear that he has is that if these other leaders, these other pillars of the church, don't see the danger of the false false gospel and deal with it, it will perpetuate the false gospel. They need to say what Paul's gospel checks with us, anything else that you're saying about him, false. Otherwise, it gives life to the lie. His fear is all about fruitless ministry. Fruitless ministry. To work all this time, and we saw in the first chapter, I am surprised that you're so quickly abandoning the faith. Why were they abandoning the faith? Because of these lies, because of the spies, because of a false gospel, which is not really really another gospel. There's only one. Who wants to work at something and you know what you're doing is right, but after many years, what you've worked on, there's a fruitlessness to it. 
You've got to overcome that. Why is it fruitless? And drive at it. I know that there are pastors in the world. They've been serving at a church a decade, and it's a dead church. There's no fruit in that ministry. Why? I would push pastors. If I, if I had all the, the room full of pastors, this would be where I would go. Don't lead a fruitless ministry. You need to be like Paul. Why is it not fruitless? Perhaps the vision that you have is not working. Change your vision. Change your plan. We all have the same mission, the great commission. No one in God's church has a different mission. The mission is make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's it. But how you do it might look different from one another. You could have a different vision. We're going to see that today in this text. And it's often said, pastors have asked, I heard them ask. We had a speaker come out. I heard them ask the speaker, when should a pastor leave a church? And part of the answer was, what's your vision for the church? If you've been there three to four years and your vision is just failing, maybe that's the time, time to go. If you've only been there one or two years, that's not long enough. It takes three, four years to really get a vision to build. But if you've been there like eight years in the vision, maybe that's a sign. But in this point, the motivation you see from Paul is I don't want to run in vain. What he means is I don't want fruitless ministry. I have invested in these people, and I'm going to have to go deal with this because they're being pulled away. That's the first thing that I, that I see in this. The second thing is reporting threats to gospel freedom. So Paul needs to be aware. And underneath this, I've got a few points. The first is that there are conflicts that come about that are cultural and we specifically see this in the example of Titus. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 15, you will, you will read about this. This letter is like, it's autobiographical. It's, he's writing about himself, giving you kind of a story of how things went. Last week, we looked at some of that, and we're picking back up. And, and in his whole conversion story, now we're at a point where he's saying, in my ministry, after a period of uh, 14 years... I left and went back to Jerusalem. I took Titus with me. Barnabas was also with me. Now, if you go back to Acts 15, you can read about it as it happened in the narrative of Acts. And he goes there because a great debate is going to arise in the church. The history of the church at that point was largely centered in Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's very Jewish. Judaism has, has a hold on God's church. And now... Paul is outside of Jerusalem, and people are coming to Christ that are not Jews, and the Jews are saying they've got to do some of the things that we do, and it's a cultural issue because the Jews as a nation have a long history of this is how we practice our faith. And the pinnacle example really is circumcision. Does Titus, I brought Titus with me, Okay, does he have to be circumcised? And so we can see that cultural things can sometimes be a threat to freedom because you don't have freedom of Christ if it's salvation by grace alone, trust only in what Christ did on the cross, plus something else that's not freedom. And they were saying, plus circumcision. 
And so even today, if we have a church that's in America and they're Western culture and we have a missionary and we send them over to another part of the world and they, they evangelize and lead uh, people to Christ that are a whole different culture, what will that church look like? Is, is it going to look like the church from the U.S.? Or will there be some cultural differences? Do they have to use the same kind of songs that the missionary brings with him? Or will you see a, a cultural flavor to their style? See, sometimes we bring with us things that are actually just part of our culture. And that's part of what he's driving at. Is you can't have true freedom then if you're trying to bring people into that and make it a part of salvation. Now, circumcision was one but there were a lot of laws. Ten commandments, you guys know that. Ten commandments. But outside of the Ten Commandments, there were, I mean, there was hundreds of laws. Food is a great example. There were only certain, certain things they couldn't eat. Okay? So the, the Gentile coming in, Titus, not only circumcision, but what's the next thing I'm going to give him? You also can't eat those kinds of foods either? Because that's how we practice our faith. And so culture does that. It, it can sometimes create rules, traditions that we follow. I put here, traditions that become non-negotiables can create legalism. The tradition is, we eat this way. We've done it for thousands of years. You've got to do it too. And you're putting something on them that they have to now, it's like, like a law. Well, I eat differently. Well, then you are breaking our tradition. It's like a law. And you could become legalistic in your way of you got to follow it. Or your faith is in jeopardy. Or at the, uh, maybe the next level is you're just not as strong a Christian or a believer because you practice in a way that's not as holy as us. Now, let me give you an example of this. When I became the lead pastor here, one of the things I said was I, I will have shaping influence over the services. In other words, what we preach, the, the, the preaching schedule, worship as well. <clears throat> and I, 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 I brought the worship leaders in and we were talking and I said, why do we... So this is what was happening. You would come into worship. First song, we would stand. After the first song, we would sit. Then you would sit for the third song. Then the fourth song, let's stand again. And we'd stand up every single Sunday, the same pattern. One time I had a friend of mine who came from the States. Some of you know this story because you were here. He, they worship standing. They like to lift their hands. They cannot be sitting in a chair and it's like this, you know. It just doesn't feel right. So they stand like this when they worship. That's, that's how they worship. In their culture they came from, that's, that's what they're used to. That's how they express themselves in worship. And they came and my friend sat right there in the, like the front row chair. And the first song, everyone stood up. I was sitting over there. Everyone stood up. We sang. He was like this. And then second song, it, everyone knows. They didn't even say sit down. They all sat down. And he started singing the second song. And my friend stood there with his eyes closed like this. The only one in the room. Because he wasn't used to the tradition of Bayview singing. How we did worship. And honestly, no one else in the room was worshiping very comfortably. Everyone was like, look at that guy. He looks, he looks silly. I can't focus. Somebody go up and whisper to him, sit down. <laughs> That's what was going on. It disrupted our whole worship. But you see, it was a tradition. I remember saying, how can we do that? And the response was, That's what we've always done. That's how we do it. How about everybody stand? Then if someone wants to sit, 
they're not as noticeable, <laughs> right? If everybody's standing in one sense, you don't notice it maybe. But that guy we notice, right? And it's less distracting. And then if people like to raise their hand, it's easier to do it. Stand, you know, all this. So we just talked about it. Why do we always do four songs? What if we did five? <gasps> Three? I mean, it's tradition. But those, there's nothing in the Bible that says you must sit down after the first song. It's just something, a pattern that we do. You see that? Now, that's another example I might give you is, is uh, specific kinds of ministry. Sometimes there's a vision how we can, re- we can reach kids with this ministry called Awana. Let's do it. And then everyone gets behind it, and it's great. And it runs for however long, a long time. But is it going to run 500 years? How, what is the lifespan of that ministry? Is there a time where maybe the question is, is it as effective as it used to be? That's the question. And I've been in Awana forever, okay? Love Awana. But the thing I learned about ministries and churches is they can take on such a value, they become like the sacred cow. You never kill the sacred cow. To stop that is like death to the sacred cow, right? And in ministry, that's a term that pastors use. Like if I, if I were to say that, oh, that's a sacred cow. The other pastor goes, okay, he knows what I mean. That's been around a long time. And, you know, if we're going to put a stop to it, someone's going to stand up and say, but I was in that ministry when I was five. Okay, but the question is, what's our vision? The vision, culture changes. Generations are different one from the other. Sometimes there has to be a different vision to reach a new generation. And there has to be the freedom to change that. Okay? Now, Paul is addressing these kinds of things. But let me take you over to what he says in Romans um, chapter 14. If you have your Bible, just flip through. I'm going to read like six verses, or if you're not there, you can listen. Just listen to this. I'm going to give you three things that he says here. The first is he's going to talk about the diversity that should exist in the church on these issues. Verse 2 Chapter 14, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Well, there's some diversity, diversity of diet, right? And because the Jews had such strict eating uh, laws, that was difficult to deal with early on. And some people might be seen as, I'm better, I'm following after Christ better because of my diet. But there has to be a freedom for people to choose their own way in that because it's, 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 not legal, it's legalistic to try to hold people to something not connected to salvation. He goes on, so diversity, verse 5 says, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Well, that's, so now it's eating, this is how, what, what when we worship, what days we hold higher than others. There has to be some diversity in that. Now, he goes on to say to you, don't pass judgment. If you're the vegetable eater and they're the meat eater, how do we deal with one another? Well, in verse 3, he says, let not, one, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And as you work through this, he goes on and says in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he, he kind of, what he does there is he, 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 he puts us all on the same level. You are all servants. There's only one. 
And in kind of a, uh, a system of servants, the servants aren't master one over the other. There's one master. Be careful that you act like the master and pass judgment on somebody else because they eat differently or respect a day or a time of day differently than you. Because that's not the attitude He wants us to have. As you grow in your faith, you may find yourself changing on issues. God might do it in here. But you must give time to people to work through things. Now, uh, some things, it's hard. It's, it's a line, you know. The Bible says, only in the boundary of marriage do you participate in sexual intimacy. That's the only place. Anything outside of that is sin. And as a Christian, if you see that, you talk about that because you want to call them out of sin, okay? But eating food... What day you might respect, that's a different category. He, goes, he tells you how to respond. Ver, uh, verse 5, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then in verse, 20, or verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When the outside world looks in, they should see the kingdom of God by how you interact with one another with grace, and there's peace. They don't look at you and go, that's the kingdom of God because they all eat a certain way. No. No. You must exist with each other in a way that creates peace, especially on different issues. And lastly, he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, this is how it works. There may be like, let me give you an example. There may be like a, 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 a movie series, and you, you say, you're, you, you participate in that, but somebody else says, you should not be watching that. And there can be judgment passed one to the other. Now, maybe the conversation could be, could, could be more like, well, what's in that that's not godly? How does God lead you on that? And it might be that over time you change your opinion about things like that, but you cannot pass judgment one to another because there's so many issues. I did a series on this once and we just laid them all out. There's so many issues. People have opinions about homeschooling, private school, public school. People have, I could throw out things like Harry Potter. Some people say, if you're Christian, you can't watch that. And it goes on and on and on, and we become entangled with creating categories of people who are better than the other because of these types of things. And this is not what the gospel actually creates as a people. So I'm going to come back to this a little bit, but right now, let me give you that. That's what Paul says in Romans 14, going back to Galatians. We see then that, that um, cultures can create conflict between each other. Sometimes it's traditions. Sometimes it's matters of the conscience. We should act in faith, be guided by God's Word. But let me give you another thing that Paul lists as being a threat to gospel freedom, and that is the erosion of time. Now, it's interesting because he says, he says, I was ministering, and then after this long period of time, 14 years, now I'm going to go back over, 
I'm going to go back over, right, and visit the pillars of the faith. And we're going to, what, what, what happened in the 14 years? Why did you wait 14 years? He came, he ministered, the Galatian uh, church is birthed. There's a, there's a community of Christians. Now suddenly 14 years later, see, there's a time element. And he, the point I want to make to you is that time can be a danger to theology, to truth, to the gospel, because the natural tendency and flow and current of the world is to always pull us away from truth. It's always that. The world in itself is never pushing us into gospel values. There's a whole world out there of values that will pull you away from gospel values into worldly values. That's, that is the natural flow of things. Now, just think about this. You go back two, three hundred years, some of the great academic institutions of America were producing some of the best pastors in America. Harvard, Yale, and they would not say that about those schools now. And one thing that's said about seminaries is they have a lifespan of about a hundred years. It's one of the reasons they start new ones. Because after a hundred years, they drift away from conservative. What they teach as the gospel is different now. You could go to one of those seminaries, and they, they will teach you that you can't trust the Bible. We just can't put our whole trust into that. I did my master's work at Talbot University. At the time I was there, this thing erupted. And it was exactly that. Can you trust the Bible? And there was a big debate about it. And now, at the time, I was writing here, finishing up my, my uh, I'm sorry, it was, it was actually my doctorate work. I was, I was over here writing my, my thesis work, and so I was communicating with my professors, and one of them had said to me, uh, it looks like it ended well. He says, I think that Biola and Talbot are good for another generation, maybe two, but in another generation, we may have to fight this fight again. Because the natural flow of the world is away from gospel truth. That's one of the dangers of gospel freedom. And let me give you this example. I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 2. And the writer of Hebrews says this. Your fingers should be getting some work or slide on your phone. Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And he gives this warning. You've got to pay attention. There's worldly values. There's gospel values. There's gospel truth. There's false gospels. Pay attention because the flow is always going to go this way. In fact, he uses the word drift. See, you as a Christian might say, well, I'm over here. I don't need to be in the fight. I don't got to travel to Jerusalem. I don't got to bring things up. I don't like debate. I don't like the arguments that might be there. I don't have to pay attention. No, pay attention. The word drift that he uses, verbs have, they could be active. They could be reflexive. They could be the action is happening to me. And that's what that verb is. The verb is, it's like if, I, if someone comes up and punches me, I didn't do it to myself. Somebody did the action to me. It's that kind of verb. Pay attention or you will drift. 
And do you know what the action is? It's happening to you. It's like a piece of wood that's sitting in a river. It's doing nothing, but the current is pulling it away. It is actually moving in a direction. And if you are complacent and you don't pay attention to the world and what's being taught in the values, the current of the world's values, it will pull you away. It's a threat to gospel freedom. Now, I put here as well, nefarious enslavers. And I use the word nefarious because it means wicked. Wicked. These spies are called this thing. Let's just, let me read to you again what's said here. It says, because of false brothers, that means they're in the church but they're actually not a brother in Christ. They're not united in Christ because they haven't put their faith in Christ. It's in a, some other gospel. Brothers uh, who secretly brought in. So there's some kind of plan to get them into that church, positions where they can know what's going on or positions of influence. They're secretly brought in. You don't know what they're actually there for. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ why? See those words, so that? They're going to give you why they did all that. They did all that so that they might bring us into slavery. The slavery they want to bring you into is to take your eyes off what Christ did on the cross and think that you need more in your life to look good in His eyes. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says your righteousness is like filthy rags. You must put all of your faith in what He did on the cross. And there's perhaps some jealousy. This is our culture. You're taking it away. You're taking our culture away because we practice honoring these days. We eat food like this. We circumcise. And what you're doing is, and they're pulling them into that. They want to take those things and make them like a giant millstone around their neck. Now, if I, if I could punch at it even harder. We live in an age today where we look back in time and we, the, today our culture, we paint horrible pictures of what slavery was. It was horrible, but it's out in our face and we want to look back and it's like, don't, even, don't identify that. Who were the, the fathers of the country? Were they slavers? What, who, and try to connect all the connections into that. And it's bad. You don't want to identify with that. If you have some heritage in that, you know, you could get lambasted in social media, in the public eye. But that is who these spies are. These spies are people that were wicked and evil because they want to enslave you. Now, I make that connection because I want you to know the heart of who the spies are. It's the purpose of Paul's letter. And he's giving us dangers. He's giving us threats to the gospel of freedom. But let me give you his reaction. Defenses for the gospel of freedom. And if I've laid that out strongly, then pay attention to this next point. How do we respond to all this? The first point is revelation. You know, Paul's great defense was, I got the words from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. So he had no doubts. One of the reasons the first thing to go in those seminaries is doubt the word of God is in what do you build a confidence on? Man? 
in the convincing of man, philosophy, what? It's just men. It's a gospel of men. It must be grounded on God's Word. And Paul got it straight from the lips of Jesus Christ and had no doubts. And I will tell you that salvation will come down to your faith in what this book says. The gospel is here. This is the Word of God. Just like Paul heard the words coming out of Christ. When I read this and they go into my ear, I am hearing the words of God. And Satan's great attack is to doubt this. Revelation. Secondly, I put litmus testimonials. You know, the word is litmus test, but I put litmus testimonials because he uses the Greek, right? Let me read it as an example. But even Titus, he's Greek, who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, right? Why is that important? I traveled to the Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15. I met with the pillars of the faith. We had a conversation and guess what? Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised. That is a powerful argument because the people who have come in to spy out, if they are right, if they're saying, you know what, Paul's gospel is not complete. There's a little more to it. You got to do these things. And then he says to them, look, I stood with Peter. I stood with James. I stood with them. And they validated, here's, here's someone, if you're right, he should have been circumcised. And he was not. That's a powerful argument against them. And I just say that because testimonies can be a powerful tool of God. And last week we talked about that, that all of us have a testimony. You came from somewhere in your journey of faith, and it can be used by God as a defense of the reality of Jesus Christ, and what He's doing in your life to draw people to that truth. Now, He also one of the defenses is affirmation of the, of, by the pillars. Now, when I read through this, one of the things that stood out to me was how many times he used the word influential. They, they, those who perceive to be influential, over and over again, he, he uses this word. And one of the things that Paul is doing is he's highlighting the leaders. They are the influence. I mean, they are deciding direction of the church and doctrine. Who is doing it? It's the pillars. It's the leaders that are doing it. And so, in one sense, one of the defenses is to say that there was a unity amongst the great pillars of the faith on the issue. So, I want to read to you uh, one section of that, because how did they do it? And I put there the mechanism, and Paul says in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So did you see what words he used there? He used the words set before. So he went to the leaders, and then he put down like this. Here, and what did he put down? He put down the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles, because you have two kind of visions for outreach. Over here, the vision was reach the Jews. Over here, Paul was, I'm sent to the Gentiles. Now let's check and make sure if the gospel, and remember, he knew he was right. He got the words from Jesus Christ, but he needs unity at the leadership level 
because it's going to influence the rest of the church, especially making it difficult for the liars, for those who are spying out, because it will, it will be uh, a, a punching a hole in their attempt to bring Paul down. So, they set before, and there is a study, and then a decision made. As I read through this, they used the word perceived. In verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace. So, there is a, a study. I'm going to, Paul, let me lay it out for you. They have the discussion, and then a decision is made because you, they use the word perceived. We can see that the gospel you have is the same. Now, affirmation is important, and it needs to be public so that people know. And there's two things I notice in the passage for how that affirmation happened. And the first is this. Peter says, nothing was added to me. And he goes through this, and he says, um, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Meaning, here's the gospel I preach to the Gentiles. The liars are saying more needs to be added. But they perceived, looked at what was set before them and perceived and said, nothing needs to be added. Do you see that? And there's a unity now. But there's another way they also affirmed him. If you go down to the very end, and it says, uh, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given, verse 9, to me, and they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and I. And there it is. Every time a pastor gets up and says, let's greet one another, extend the right hand of fellowship. That's just not a made-up term. <laughs> it's actually in the Bible. But in this case, what's you, it's being used to say, you're right, and we give you our blessing to go reach the Gentiles. So it's a public, and this is, this is happening between the leaders, but it's being made known publicly. Remember, this is a way to defend truth. And then the last thing I, I put here is that no quarter is given. And that's a, like a military term, you know, like we're not going to show you any mercy or respite. We're going to deal with it in its totality. And I get that from uh, the words where he says, um, first of all, uh, preservation of truth was at stake. But he says, um, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And I love the emphasis on not even a moment. Do you know how dangerous it is? They've already been secretive, and they've slept in, uh, slipped in, and now we've, we've identified it. Well, don't give it any quarter. If it's false, call it out. Because if you let it live, even a little bit like that, from one generation to the next, it can grow. Two generations away, it could be not that small, this big. And that's why you go back, here's the revelation, what does it say, how does it speak to us in our life? An example I would say, today in our culture, what are culture values? Well, here's a couple that come in, they define marriage differently than the Bible. 
I read God's Word, Revelation, it tells me that's not accurate. Well, they're really nice. I like, have you ever been around them? And it's true, that can be very true. But I can't say if you're trying to make marriage something different than what the revelation of God says, I can't give that any quarter. It can't have life in this, the community of Christ. And so you have to deal with it. And why does Paul say? Because preservation of the gospel itself is at stake. So go out into the world, and you're going to find, be a good neighbor. Some of your neighbors are going to have different values than you. Don't be judgmental on them. We're to be a good neighbor. We're to live in a, the community in such a way that we demonstrate we love the community because God wants us to reach the community. But you can't give quarter to the things that we shouldn't give quarter to when we come in here to the church. We're going to preach the truth of God's Word. Now, it brings me to the very end, recognizing unity plus diversity is very key in preserving the freedom. You've got to have unity, but there's going to be diversity. And you know what? Diversity always challenges unity. Diversity challenges unity. You bring two cultures together, there's going to be some aspect about the cultures that, that competes. And one culture could say, we're going to hold this as very important to that culture. And so what it does, diversity creates within the community of God, first of all, humility. There is no one culture that is elevated above any other culture. There's not. If there was, the, the, the culture that could make the case for it are the Jews. It's through them that the world's been blessed through Jesus Christ. So, the only type of cultural supremacy that might exist would be Jewish. The exact opposite exists. They're one of the most hated groups in the world and probably the most sought at to destroy globally many times in history. Now, it creates humility, but it sharpens us as well, because it makes you deal with the differences and sort out things. Just like Paul was talking about, the eating, you must, there's got, you have to work at peace. And to do that, you have to not hold tightly to things and learn to let go and hold things like this. And be okay that somebody is my brother or sister in Christ might have a different thought about that. So, let me just work through these real quick. There's a few points on here. I put here, accountability is necessary when diversity exists. I just was explaining that. But I want to show you two things underneath this. Trusted leaders are shepherd, shepherds of truth. Now, it is true. This is the final say. No leader could ever teach something differently. If a pastor gets up and teaches you something that's different than what the Word of God says, that should be brought out. Pastor, but what about this? And that has happened in history. And it could still happen. And it's important that we always look at God's Word as the foundation, as the standard of truth. Even Paul himself said, look, if I come to you later on and have another gospel, I'm wrong. This is the gospel. Now, um, trusted leaders are shepherds of the truth. Look what they did. I went to Jerusalem to talk to them about it, but then what does Paul add? It's up there in verses 1 and 2. I met with the leaders 
privately. He didn't show up and there's thousands of people in the church, we're going to sort it out, all of us together. No, the leaders go like this and the leaders talk about it privately. Said it before, let's deal with it. And that happens, that is the way it should happen, especially when uh, in our culture, there's more and more changing truth and changing definitions of things. Sometimes the leaders, we get together and we talk about that. But then when we come forward in unity, we say, this is what God's Word says about that. About five years ago, we did that very thing. We gathered together. We talked about something. There's changing definitions going on. We came back. We talked to the church about it. This is what the leaders have seen in God's Word, how it applies to this change. And We added specificity to how we define gender because of what was going on in the world. But it's at a leadership level. That doesn't doesn't make anyone in this room less. It's how God has ordered His church. And that's why it's so important that you never, Paul says, lay hands on or commission or ordain an unqualified person to lead a church. You have a lot of power in God's Word. It has given you the qualifications. And at any time, and we did this, we brought two men, and we're, we're training up others, and there's qualifications, and they must meet the qualifications. I don't care how good of a businessman you are out in the secular world. It does not mean that you can come into the church and be good at leading the church. It's not a business. I don't care how good you are in the military. It does not mean you could come in and just lead the church. The purpose of the church isn't lethal warfare. It's make disciples of Jesus Christ. So this exists. How do you defend free, the free gospel, the freedom of, of God that we have in Christ? I'm giving it to you. We have God's Word, the greatest tool that we can have. But have good leaders. And they deal with it at a leadership level. I also put here just, to, you know, because you know, you know one of the ways I, I get it from the passage? It keeps using the word trusted. The trusted leaders. That means they were vetted, and then they put, they, they, they vetted them, they're in a position of leadership, and now we willingly are going to follow them, always guided by God's Word. Those things work together. Now, I will say this just to make this comment. I put there, entrusted with doctrine from the same chief shepherd. That's why you can have unity, because they have the same head. The same hand over here is controlled. This hand over here, they're both controlled by the same head. There's one head. And in the Bible, it, it uses the word senior pastor one time in the book of Ephesians. And it says, when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus Christ, the word chief Senior, the highest, the word shepherd is pastor. That's what the word pastor means, to shepherd. The chief shepherd, the senior pastor, there's only one. And I know sometimes I get on the soapbox and I preach that. I'm not really the senior pastor, Jesus is. But sometimes I use the term because culturally that's how we identify. That's why I like to use the term lead elder. We have a plurality of elders and there's a lead elder. But we have a head and it's Jesus Christ. And the same shepherd over this church is the same shepherd over the Baptist church down the street or the Presbyterian church over there. So 
We have one shepherd. That's why when they come together and Peter says, look, I got this from Jesus Christ. Let's compare. I said it before you. It's going to be the same because Jesus is truth. And he wouldn't be one thing to this pastor and this, something different to that one. He's true. I remember uh, a guy, my dad tells a story about a guy who came to him and said, God has told me that I am to be the youth pastor of your church. And my father very graciously told him, well, when he tells me, I'll hire you. <laughs> One chief shepherd. There's accountability and unity because the head's the same, and they can set before, and they can see if it checks out. Now, looking at my time here, I know Scott looks hungry. He's ready for lunch. So, uh, visions belong to the entrusted leaders. Let me work through this quickly. I'm just looking at my time. I uh, went a little long on some other points. But what I really am driving at this, there's that word entrusted again, is that in the passage you see two different shepherds, two different leaders entrusted to two different ministries. Peter is entrusted by Jesus Christ. He's given the vision for reaching the circumcised, the Jews. But Paul is given the ministry, the vision, to reach the Gentiles. Two different groups of people, two ethnic different groups of people. That is totally a reality. Sometimes when people come into a church and they, wait, let me not get ahead of myself. Let me say this, that the vision then for ministry starts with the leaders of the church. Do you pastor, that I would say, if it's a room full of pastors, what is your vision for the church? Peter had a vision that was very specific to reaching Jews, but Paul's was to the Gentiles, and they were not going to be the same. Over here, to reach Jews, we can go to the synagogue, we can stand up, and we can go to the Old Testament Scriptures and demonstrate why they show that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. I may not do the same thing to reach Gentiles. They will go, Old Testament, what? They don't know that. Paul goes to the Acropolis. He goes and sees statues to an unknown God. Let's talk about your unknown God. His strategy is different. You can have different visions for how you're going to reach different peoples, and it's okay. But we have the same mission, make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's important because this is the other point. Well, first of all, if you're in the church, then you should be saying, what's the pastor's vision? What are the elders' vision? What's the leader? What's their vision? Because now I've been here, this is the 11th year. Every year, some people leave and more people come. And there's always someone who comes in and says, I've got a great ministry. I have sat down there in my office with people so many times. And they go, I've got a vision for this ministry. And so I have to listen to it. And then I have to see if it fits. If it doesn't fit the vision that we have as a church, it, it won't work well. You're going to actually cause all this like influence to rise up, and there's two different things going on. But see, the vision here is how do we minister to people that are here two years because of the transition of military people, but then how do we reach the locals? I could live off the transition of people. I could preach like the same sermon every five years because it, it changes. But if we never reach any locals, I have to, how do we reach the local? How we reach the local, I'm just going to tell you, is different than ministering to the transition of people. So we have this 
this, this dual kind of vision that works together. And then somebody comes along and they want to champion something. And there have been times where I've said that that's not going to work here, but I know a church where it will. Go over there and see if that pastor's for that. Maybe God's calling you to that church. That's okay, because we're not about just collecting people and a number. We're about bringing glory to God by developing communities of people who know how to go on mission. Now, sometimes I get people in here and they care a lot about a particular doctrine. And I've seen this with pastors, sometimes with pastors. They want to make everyone a Calvinist, or they want to, they want to just talk about the end times. Or if you have a particular uh, uh, discipline that you want to champion, make sure it still fits within the vision of the church. Because the pastor needs to build like a, a body and, and unit that can do the job for Christ. Okay? Now, I know Scott's looking even more hungry now. Almost done. Can you have homogeneous vision without judgment? Just really quick. When I get up to preach in my dad's church, a couple years ago I went, I went like this, and I looked up, and it just hit me. Everyone's white. It's the middle of Montana. The middle of Montana. Now, sometimes people look and they go, well, that's not a true church because they're only reaching one people. But... I, re- I totally reject that because sometimes you're called to reach a, a people and it'll be like that. But in missions, they have this thing called the homogeneous principle, which it essentially is like this. Sometimes, this is what missionaries have learned, you can actually reach people with the gospel faster when everybody is the same because there are no cultural barriers. They all speak the same language. They all eat the same kinds of food, and it spreads faster. That's all it is. That's all it means. When you bring in 10 cultures together, how many languages are there? You don't understand maybe sometimes the words I'm using. So sometimes it can be complicated. I say let God work. Sometimes people are called to reach one group, and that's just going to be reflected in the church. Okay? Our church, I love the diversity. I love it. Okay? And I got to I got to move on, but uh, last is diversity of vision can still unite around common ministry goals. Let's listen to verse ten. So they commission them. They say, "Go, you're to the Gentiles." And in verse ten, they give him one stipulation only. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Well, you're going to reach Jews. I'm going to reach Gentiles, but we both care about the poor. Now that works here. I'll gather together the pastors. You might have, we might have some different visions, but we can work together better at solving the foster kid crisis. First year, around 100. Ten years later, 600 foster kids. Pastors, if each one of you just spend one or two Sundays and you talk about this, and one family comes from your church and says, I will take a foster kid, do you know how much impact that would have? See, we can work together that way. Sometimes there are in an area that God's trying to grow the gospel, a common goal between churches that have different visions. That's okay. And you could build coalitions like that. Safe Haven is one. I'll be talking more about that through the year. But that's the beauty of God's community. Now, I really have to quit. I'm going to pray and let us go into worship because Scott's reservation is late. So, Father, thank you so much for Paul and his ministry I just look at what he did, and he brought together um, leaders who you gave different visions to. And in the moment, he teaches us how can we uh, defend go- the gospel in his freedom. 
He teaches us how to recognize threats to that. And He teaches us how to uh, deal with it, Lord. So I pray that we've learned something today, how important uh, unity is, how um, beautiful diversity can be, and what we can learn and how we grow because of it. And we just lift it up to you. Thank you for your grace in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.